0: I don't want people to get all paranoid when they're smoking weed, but I do want people to think about it. And I do want people to do their own research. Don't take my word for it. I still have plenty of my friends who take drugs. I can't anymore, obviously, but I've tried to process it. And at this point, I don't know what it means. It's it's just something that happened to me that was just completely insane, completely traumatic, and and completely unique that I never thought would ever happen to me.
1: Feeling lost?
0: Then you're in the
2: right place.
1: I'm Amanda Knox.
2: And I'm Christopher Robinson. And this is Is Labyrinths. Labyrinths. If you're a longtime listener of Labyrinths, you know that Amanda and I are not judgmental when it comes to substance use. We did a whole mini-series about psychedelics, where we were open about times we've tried drugs in the past. In the series finale, I did five grams of psilocybin, a so-called hero's dose. And
1: given the problems with mass incarceration, we're in favor of ending the drug war and legalizing most substances. That said, even seemingly benign drugs like cannabis can have disastrous consequences for some people. Today's guest Christian learned that lesson the hard way.
0: I was living in Philadelphia, and my friend and I, who was also a heavy cannabis user, we decided to go on what's called a tea T-break, which is, can have the stand for THC break or tolerance break, but essentially, you kind of stop smoking weed for like a week or two so that it feels fun again. So we had almost completed a week, and I decided to just break it out a little early. And so I'm in my studio apartment, and I hit my bong a couple times, and then I just start feeling really good. It's late at night, it's after work. Typically I would smoke, you know, like seven o'clock until I had to go to bed. And so I'm watching, I think I'm watching All World of the Rings, and all of a sudden, all these like thoughts start coming into my head. But like, the thoughts aren't the the weird thing, it's the rapid pace mm. at which they're coming. just to kind of maybe give you a window into it. Say that there's a scene with someone walking. I'm thinking, wow, the sky's really blue. I wonder what shade of blue that is. I'm gonna look it up right now. That is two shades off from the colors of their shoes. And I wonder if I can do the math to deter-. just like really rapid fire things mm-hmm. that maybe in a vacuum without context might make sense, but going a million miles a second.
1: Wow. So just like, like almost like you can't even keep up with your own thoughts.
0: hundred percent. Another thing that was interesting was I thought every single one of these thoughts was like the most beautiful, meaningful, interesting thought ever. So I started to write them all down. And so I opened like a text document and I just started rapid fire typing. And I might be misremembering this, but I think I had a hundred thousand words within like an hour or something like that wow it's like grabbing water from like a faucet or something and then as this really what i thought was a really cool meaningful thing i then deleted all those thoughts i don't really know i was just kind of acting crazy i really wish i still had those
1: yeah i was about to say i would love to to see those but do you have a memory of the word document like were they full sentences or were they like fragments of thoughts
0: I think a little bit of both. A lot of them were like instructions, like, make sure to watch this podcast tomorrow so that you can figure out what happens in this scene before you even watch it. But Hmm. the most interesting thing to me was the physical sensation that my brain had split in two, not like painful or anything, but almost just the realization that that had happened. And then I thought that one side was feminine and one side was masculine and that they were talking to each other. And I was
1: interesting that's
0: kind of a better way of phrasing it because i wanted to remember what they were saying to each other it wasn't necessarily me in mm. and I, this just sounds so crazy but like no
1: it doesn't that sounds fascinating like yeah you're almost witnessing your own mind
0: yes that's a good way of saying it
1: interesting
2: would you say that you did a larger dose than you were used to or is was it pretty typical for what you were used to smoking.
0: Yeah, that's one of the questions I typically get asked, and it's a really important one. So the answer is like, not really. But in context, since I had just done a tolerance break, I guess you could say it was more than usual. Another question that I usually get is, well, do you think maybe it was laced with something? And it definitely was not laced because I typically got like an ounce or a half an ounce and I would just like smoke it for like a few weeks. And I was almost out of uh, a half of an ounce. So it was still fresh. I had been smoking it for a while and used the same dealer for a while.
1: So you're witnessing your brain do something that you've never seen it do before. And at first, it sounds like you were almost enjoying the experience. You're like, oh, wow, here are all these incredible thoughts and I'm going to write them all down. When did that shift?
0: Yeah. So it, it was gradual. Also, at the time, I was training to be a competitive bodybuilder. And so I was eating extremely clean, just like chicken, rice and broccoli all day. And so I felt great because I had just started that diet. I kept telling everyone, I feel like I'm on cocaine. I feel like I'm doing lines. Like I feel so great. Must be the diet. Right. And then the week before Memorial Day is when I would say that I felt like I was on cocaine. And then the Saturday or Sunday of Memorial Day weekend is when I felt my brain sort of pull apart. So since they were such amazing thoughts, which I thought were so profound, I decided to start sharing them with everyone (laughs) that I knew. So I went on my messaging apps and I just started rapid fire just saying crazy stuff. Uh, My favorite thing to do was I thought I could read people's minds, not like some kind of supernatural thing, but I thought I was just like so in tune with everything that I, I knew what everyone was thinking. And so I was trying to like read my friends' minds and they were getting kind of concerned And the reading minds thing,
2: was that a way you had thought prior to this moment in a casual way
0: or
1: in the way that like when I walk into a room, I can usually tell how people are feeling like I can tell who's uncomfortable or not.
0: Yeah, sort of. I mean, I guess I thought I was really good at reading body language over the phone. I thought I was so good at it that I could literally uh, what I was doing specifically is I was typing what I thought they were going to say before they would type it. And then, you know, Mm. usually it wasn't even close to (laughs) to what they were going to (laughs) say. And I think man, it's really hard to know what day this was on. This might have been the next day, but I have a a friend who I'll just call Mike and he was a med student at the time. And he called me up and he was like, hey, man, what's what's going on? (laughs) I was also talking very quickly, like just physically.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And I don't know what I really said to him, but. He was essentially like so this is called a manic episode i'm pretty sure he's like you're not in your right mind and you should probably go to the hospital and one of the things about being crazy is you don't know that you are so i was trying to tell him like i know why you might think that and i would probably say the same thing too but here's why i'm not crazy and then a bunch of words trying to explain why i wasn't crazy he was like okay I don't know. I I doubt that I actually convinced them that I was okay. But he seemed kind of satisfied with what I had told him. And he's like, "Okay, do you, you want to get lunch tomorrow, anyways?" Like, because we both lived in Philadelphia, so we got lunch. But instead of just you know going to the restaurant like a normal person, I decided to go 15 minutes early, and I wanted to stalk him going to the restaurant because I wanted to make sure that he I don't know wasn't doing anything nefarious. We go way back great friends. Uh, he's never done anything wrong to me. But I thought he was going to try to do the same thing to me because, I don't know, he had some kind of agenda. So I was like stalking him through the streets of Philadelphia. And then we we eventually got there. And then we had a pretty long talk just about normal things, how med school was going, how my job was going. And then he seemed pretty satisfied with my mental state. And then at the end, I, I started saying crazy stuff. My goal with that, I remember, was to bring him on as my first disciple of this new religion that I had just founded when my brain broke open. I I was like, oh, this must be what God is. This must be what Muhammad went through and what Jesus went through in the desert. And so I tried to explain to him like simple like arithmetic, how like one plus one equals two. And I thought that was like really, really deep. And he was like, okay, this is getting crazy. We're going to the hospital.
3: Hmm.
2: Now are you still using cannabis at this point? Several days later. Okay. So at this point, he says, OK, we're going to the hospital. And what's your reaction?
0: Yeah. So that's when I get into really deep mental gymnastics about why I don't need to go to the hospital. I was basically saying, like, I'll walk with you to the hospital, but I'm going to convince you on the way over that I don't need to. But just to show you that I'm in good faith here, I will start to walk with you. And by the time you'll realize that I'm sane.
1: Got ya. But meanwhile, are you also trying to bring him onto your religion still?
0: Yeah, I think by that time, I realized that wasn't going to happen, at least today. So I'm like, (laughs) we'll we'll try again some other time. But objective one was don't go into the hospital.
3: Hmm.
0: Yeah. So on the way, he was threatening to call my parents, which I think is a pretty reasonable thing to do. And I just kept gaslighting him into not doing it because that would upset my mom. And he was calling my other friend, Stan, who was also in Philadelphia, because he stands like my best friend. And. He was like, I'm just going to call him and let him know something weird's going on just in case, you know, whatever. And so uh, eventually we get to the hospital.
1: All right. And how were you treated?
0: Pretty good. I mean, I was sitting on a bed. This was one of the first times where I kind of realized shit was serious because I looked over and Mike was just like holding back tears. And I'd never seen anything like that from him. And I was, like, so confused. I was like, why is he crying? This is all just a big joke, right? I'm not really going into the emergency room. Like, yeah, we might be here, but, like, this is all just a big thing. And I remember telling him, like, oh, this is harder on me than it is you. And, like, that definitely was not true. I just, people say that in the movies, so I just thought I would say that.
1: Hmm. It didn't occur to me that as you are experiencing this, this is also like a really good day for you. You feel really good and you feel yeah. like your brain is activated. Everything feels awesome. And to go from that feeling to looking over at your friend who's suffering for you, who's afraid, it seems like it would it doesn't make sense. Yeah, this is the best day of my life. Why are you crying at my wedding? Like, what are you? You know, like, right. Ah, uh,
0: yeah. I remember just being confused I, I was like i thought everyone was was enjoying this because me and him we we would always debate about god and religion and all this stuff so we have a very long history of having interesting arguments and debating things sure. and so i'm like this is just another debate between us dude like it's gotten kind of crazy we're in the hospital but it's a funny story and then right you look over and then you realize that he's shaking oh. and it's like oh this isn't funny and then you kind of forget cuz you have no short-term memory and then it's back to everything's great And then the nurses came in and took my vital signs and stuff. And then eventually a psychiatrist came in. She was like, okay, I I think you're having a manic episode. And at this point, I still don't really know what that was. Like I never had any introduction to mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so I keep a journal every day where I track my mood. And I was like, no, no, you have it all wrong here. Let me show you my journal. And normally it would go from like 4 out of 10 to 6 out of 10, pretty stable. And then for the past week or however long it was, it was like 10 out of 10. This is the best day ever. (laughs) Life is amazing. (laughs) Everything's great. And she's like, oh, okay, got it. Yeah, Uh, not a manic episode at all. (laughs) Yeah, and then she was like, we have to keep you here. And I believe this was a Sunday specifically. And that's when this was all fun and games in my mind. To, oh shit this is actually a problem now and my parents are going to find out and i'm gonna have to pay for this hospital and i have work tomorrow and yeah all these things just started crashing in mm. so that is an immediate 180 from everything's amazing to just immediate everything's awful this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me my number one objective is do not stay in the hospital because if that happens, I'm thinking my parents are going to find out and they they are very anti-drug. Um, they had no idea that I was taking drugs for years and they cannot find that out. And then also money-wise, I don't want to do that. And I was also working for a smaller company. They were profitable, they weren't a startup, but it's kind of like if you take a day off, it's like, well, we need you to get your work done. Right. So yeah,
2: a bunch of negative consequences are rolling down the hill towards you. If yep. you stay in the hospital, you're going to miss work. Your parents are going to find out it's going to impact your relationship with them. They're going to learn about
0: the drugs, and
1: which are all rational, totally rational, bad news scenarios.
0: And then beyond all beyond all reasonable doubt or whatever, I I didn't stay in the hospital. I I just talked my way out of it. My friends, they said, we're not going to make you stay against your will. I think they technically could have done that and that. Honestly, probably would have been a good idea. But I was just cogent enough where my friends didn't make me stay. And the doctors are like, Well, you should definitely stay, but we're not gonna hold you. Right. Um, so I, I walked out of the hospital that night.
1: Hmm. Was Mike there with you the whole time?
0: Yeah. So at this point, Stan was also there. He had come and they were like, Well, dude, I don't know what to do. You should probably stay, You'd listen to them, but we're not gonna like force you to stay here. So they gave me a condition. And they say, okay, you can walk out of here, but you need to call your parents and you need to tell them what's going on. And to me, that's like my lose condition. I can't do that. But honestly, it it sounded better than than staying in a psych ward. So in the parking lot, I called up my mom. I called her up and I was like, hey, something really bad happened to me. I'm not going to tell you yet. And I want to tell you in person. (laughs) She's like. Christian, you have to tell me right now what is happening. Actually,
1: that's not how this works. See, I'm your (laughs) mom. I gave birth to you. Uh -uh.
0: (laughs) And this is just like a complete shock to her system. In her mind, I was just this normal kid who was kind of nerdy. Into the, going to the gym and then you call her up and I'm like, hey mom, I'm in the hospital because I smoked a lot of weed and I'm crazy now. Just want to let you know. Your parents live in Philadelphia? No. So they're they're still up in northern Jersey where I'm from. Okay. So it's like a two hour drive. It's not crazy yeah. far, but it's far enough. And so I tell them like the short of it. And they're like, uh, okay, maybe you should come home. And I'm like, well, no, I have to go to work. Which is Honestly, like it was a small company, but they would be fine without me for a few days. Like they didn't need me. So that was a bit irrational.
1: All right. So did you just go home and go to work the next day? Like weren't no thing? And how'd that go?
0: This is when it gets (laughs) even crazier.
1: (laughs) Okay, let's go.
0: So I go into work and I have a really good relationship with the CTO of the company. I mean, that's a big title, but it's a small company. So, but he's still my boss. And so I start messaging him crazy shit. I don't really remember, but I I just start like messaging him rapid fire on our work chat.
3: Hmm.
0: He comes over to my desk and says, dude, like, what's going on? Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, no, totally good, man. And then I go to show him that I'm sane. I quote unquote realize that he's sending me secret messages to go to like the 17th floor with a glass of milk and go into the offices there and ask for his name. And so I do that. So I get a glass of milk from the fridge. I go to a random office, people I've never met in my life. And I'm like, hey, is so-and-so here? And they're like, no. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, got it. This must be part of the test. And so I go back down and I'm like, hey, I talked to those people. And he's like, dude, what is going on with you? And so he's like, oh, you want to go for a walk? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And so we start walking unbeknownst to me towards uh, the hospital again. And on the way, we're just shooting the shit. And in my mind, I think that he is going to bestow the company to me and he's going to retire. And like, that's just really funny because I was a junior developer at the time, kind of like an apprentice in the trades. I didn't know what I was doing. He's also not retiring. And like, why would he give me the. Yeah.
1: He's his company. Yeah.
0: Right. Like he told me later that I was like running into traffic too, not looking both ways and just doing like typically stupid things. So he we we just walked right into the hospital again.
1: Yeah. I mean, and uh, honestly, like being bequeathed to the company makes a lot more sense than receiving secret messages to take a milk glass of milk up to the 17th floor. <laughs> when you received the secret message, did any part yeah. of you go, that's weird. Why would he ask me to do that?
0: No, not at all. Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's totally normal. And uh, actually, to even expand upon that, because I'm, I'm really glossing over a lot of because there's so much to cover, but there's a lot of crazy details like They were handing out sweatshirts that day at my company. And so only half of the people got sweatshirts, and uh, I was one of them. And so the explanation that the sane person would come to is that, oh, they're giving out sweatshirts for like, you know, because they're nice and they like us employees and it's free advertising. My conclusion was that there was a civil war about to happen between two factions in the company, the sweatshirts and the non-sweatshirts. And he had one and I had one. So, I thought he was going to explain to me how we were going to take over the company or something. Hmm. It was and a coup. So was, it was a
1: sweatshirt coup. Yeah. Okay. Sweatshirt wow. coup. Okay, cool.
0: When he's walking you
2: toward the hospital again, do you realize at some point the direction you're heading and where he's walking you toward?
0: Not really until we're there. Hmm. Hmm.
2: So you find yourself,
0: oh, here we are again. Mm-hmm.
1: Did he know that you had been in the hospital the day before?
0: No, and this is actually a pretty important point. This was like a branch of the hospital, but it wasn't the exact same place I was. Hmm. So no one there knew that I was there the other night. So this is really like the next day. And I, I honestly couldn't tell you how I did this, but I talked my out of it uh, again. I don't know if I convinced them that I was okay, but I convinced them that I like knew a psychiatrist that I was going to go to and that this happened all the time. Hmm. Hmm. And I said something that they were like, "Okay, good enough, I guess.
1: Yeah. And you know what? Like, to be fair, it's a big deal to hold somebody against their will. It's a big deal. And there's a lot of legal liability that goes into that. So I think that unless they felt like you were a danger to yourself or others, that they should not cross that line. Yeah. Which leads to the interesting question of when somebody decided that they needed to cross that line with you.
0: The next weekend, I was moving from my apartment actually into a two-bedroom with Stan, the guy from the first night, and I was just deeper into the mania and the psychosis. How so? Um, So one of the symptoms of mania is uh, being in love with people randomly. And so there's this person that I know from my high school that I had a crush on like freshman year or whatever. I thought I was madly in love with her, and I told my dad this, and he's just like, dude, what is going on? And so he said, "Just focus on the move," because he just wanted me to get all my stuff into my new apartment, and then they were going to bring me home and get me to the hospital. But when he said focus on the move, I was like, "Oh, focus on asking out this girl
2: ah, and making so I the was move."
0: Like, yeah, making the move, and I was like contemplating all these different things. And meanwhile, I was like running back and forth between the two apartments because they were in the same building, bringing all my stuff. And um, there's really there's like so much that happened that day but to kind of summarize stan and i moved in partially and then he started driving me back to north jersey where i'm from at this point in my life too i was really into the dark side of the moon like the album and so i was like hey man can i like put some music on i'm sure i said it in a crazy way he's like sure dude whatever and so i i put that album on And then I think it's like talking to me. And I think, oh, yeah, in order to get this girl, I'll call her Sue. In order to get Sue to fall in love with me, I need to, you know, like run, rabbit, run, like some of the lyrics. And I I put on sunglasses in the car and I'm like swaying back and forth dancing and just getting to a point where I'm starting to look visually insane, too. Hmm. I have my sweatshirt hoodie up all the way, I think. And I have huge sunglasses and I'm just like dancing in my seat and Poor Stan. I don't really remember much about what he looked like. But at this point, instead of saying things as sentences, I would only ask questions. I don't really know why. And so I'd be like, hey, can I ask you a question? And then I would just like say something random. At this point, the paranoia was was pretty peak. And so I thought that there was a grand conspiracy between all men, that all men smoked weed, and that It was really just women who didn't understand, and we were on our way to go convince my mom that I could like smoke weed or something. And so I thought my dad was in on it, and I thought Stan was in on it, and I thought, I'll call up my dad. And I did, and I asked him, how am I doing? Because I thought we were all in on this thing. And he was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, don't say it over the phone.
1: And so Stan, he spent the day moving in with you, but he knew that you had been to the hospital. He knew that you were acting very, very strangely, saying very strange things. Was he also having an emotional reaction the way Mike was? Because he clearly is someone who cares about you. He's a friend of yours. You're moving in together like you're close.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we've we've always been close. I know that he was in contact with my parents, and I know that he was very distraught, especially when we finally got to the hospital. I looked at him, and he looked like Mike did on the first night, just completely distraught.
2: Wait, so he was driving you to the hospital? Yep. He's not taking you to your parents' house?
0: Yeah, not to, not to their house, like straight to a hospital that's near uh, my home.
2: Gotcha. Okay, and so you, that's a surprise to you?
0: Yeah, because I thought we were just going to my parents' house.
1: right?
2: Okay, so the third time now, a friend of yours has walked you up to that emergency room. Is this time any different? Do you walk in willingly or is that still your lose condition?
0: At this point, that's totally out of my mind and I'm totally willing because I'm like, oh, I guess we have to do it here. We'll do the convincing here. And so I put on my sunglasses, just like a lunatic, and Stan and I start walking through the hospital to get to where my parents are. I don't really know where they were. It was some kind of like intake thing. And it was it was so spooky because we were walking through like halls that were just like really dark. I don't know if that was supposed to be that way, but it was very surreal because I, I knew that I was walking towards something big. I didn't know what it was, but I, I was, it literally was as if we were walking through a labyrinth because it was dark, the lights were flickering, and I'm just walking into something that I I have no idea Hmm. and we eventually we meet my parents at this intake place and my mom is just super distraught as you could imagine yeah and um, Stan also can't really hold back tears and um, my dad and and he start talking my mom brings me into this room and she just tries talking with me I, I don't know what I say I can't remember. But then she just kind of gets to this point with tears in her eyes where she realizes that I'm just gone. And so she asked me to get into the line for uh, the intake, and I do. And I don't really know what I say to them, but they put a wristband on me. And then we go into the emergency triage place, and I, I get onto bed.
1: And how are you feeling in this moment? You're seeing the people around you who love you who are in distress, how are you processing
0: that? Um, Really, I'm not. I I really just think that, oh, it'll be all okay. This is part of the process. In order to convince my mom, she's just going to need a lot of convincing. And at this point, reason is just very far gone. And I'm just rationalizing everything that I'm seeing. And uh, I'm in this bed and there's just people around me who are hysterical and I'm assuming it was some sort of psychiatric intake um, because there's people crying horrifically, wailing. And I I just decide to pretend that I'm asleep. I don't really know why. I I just didn't want to look at my parents anymore. And they have no idea what's going on. I mean, you don't really either. (laughs) Right. Were you scared at any
2: time during this?
1: Yeah. How did you feel while you were laying there?
0: I felt sort of exhilarated to get this convincing done because I just wanted to smoke more, to be honest. Um, And so I felt still fine. And out of respect to my parents, I I won't go into details about what they were going through. But stuff that a parent should never have to do, um, comforting each other in ways that is just so beyond normal and so beyond what a parent should have to see their kid go through. And the the hardest part about it for me is that I was having a great time. I I still feel guilty about that to this day. And I've tried to process that, but it's just, it's one thing if it was just like a natural disaster and I got hit by a hurricane in a car and then I was all banged up and I was grieving with them or, or something like that. But it was like funny to me. Their anguish was like oh, we'll laugh about this one day. And it's like, Hmm. no, we won't. This is not funny at all.
1: Mm. Well, what's interesting is you say you feel guilty about that. And I have heard you say a few times, like refer to yourself a little bit self-deprecatingly. But like none of this was your choice, right? Yeah. You didn't choose to have a manic episode. You didn't even know you were having a manic episode. So I do feel like a part of me, especially the mom part of me, wants to give you a hug and say, like, it's not your fault, you know, like you were experiencing something that was not in your control in the same way that a natural disaster was. And you didn't you weren't controlling your feelings, you
0: know? Yeah. Anyway, I agree with that.
1: Okay, so what happens after you're laying there pretending to be asleep? On the bed.
0: Yeah, this is where it gets really hard to remember. But they move me around to different beds. They're trying to figure out what the heck is wrong with this kid. And they give me a drug test and they find, of course, loads of THC. And they're like, okay, this kid is just like two stoned or something. So they move me around trying to figure it out. And then eventually I end up in something called the blue room. I don't know if anyone has ever heard of that term because I certainly hadn't. It might just be like a thing specific to that hospital, but this is where. I learned later that it's a holding place for the psych ward there. And at this point, my parents were gone. I don't know when they left. I don't know where I was. But I was in a gown and I was kind of in a prison cell. It looked like a bunch of sheetrock, nothing on the walls, a single bed, and then a, a TV behind a plexiglass or like bulletproof glass playing like a Marvel movie of all things.
1: Oh, God. That sounds not very inviting at all. <laughs> Not therapeutic at all.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Not at all. Uh. Not at all. And this is when I went into, not a medical term, but I call it like deep psychosis, deep paranoia. And so I'm thinking that the hospital is trying to put me in jail because I I think this is jail.
1: Yeah. Sounds awful lot like jail to me. So, (laughs) yeah.
0: Right. And I'm thinking... That at this point, it's not a conspiracy of men who all smoke weed and it's actually Christians who smoke weed. And I think that there are some security guards who are the Christians who are trying to get me out of here. And there are some who, I don't know, I guess are just not Christians and don't know about this. I somehow, I could not tell you how, I somehow sneak out of my cell, out of this blue room, and I find a phone like a normal payphone on the wall. And I call my dad. It was like to his voicemail. I was like, oh, dad, just tell you no mission accomplished or something like that. And then I call myself because I don't have my phone at this point, of course. And I leave myself a message. And I was like, I told you I would get this all resolved in a week. I think I actually deleted that voicemail because it's too creepy. It doesn't even sound like me. I literally sound like a supervillain. Wow. And then I get caught. The guards put me back. And so I'm pacing back and forth and I'm trying to think, how can I get out of here? Because, like, I also have the presence of mind to think whatever I tell them, they're going to think I'm crazy because everyone seems to think that. And so I think I'll put on a little performance. And so Hmm. I like take my gown and I like rip it off. And I think I'm going to try and recreate the crucifixion of Jesus because Christians will know what that is and non Christians won't which I think everyone kind of knows what happened. (laughs) Yeah. But so I I tear off my gown and I start like screeching like a crazy person. And then I start writhing around. As if um, you're being crucified? Kind of. Because like I I was growing up in the church, so I kind of know some of the specifics of it too, where like once he died in the synagogue or something, like a, a curtain was ripped open and that represented the... Fusion of heaven and earth, oh, and so I'm like, oh, I'll tear open the curtain, and that mm-hmm. that'll show the Christians that have read the Bible seriously that I know what I'm doing, and so I tear it off, and I'm screaming like, Eloi Eloi Lamasa Bhaktani, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Crazy shit. To sum it up, I'm just going absolutely crazy, and so the guards come in, and they're like, dude, what's going on? <laughs> God bless these guards; that they were so cool. Obviously, another day in the office for them. But they're like, here, take this, and they gave me some pills. And I'm like, oh, is this like an edible? <laughs> they're like, yeah, <laughs> man, it's an edible. Totally, Enjoy. Just, <laughs> it. just take the edible. Um, and then I take these pills that they give me, which I assume just knocked me out. Right, mm-hmm. right,
1: sedatives, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so when do you wake up again?
0: I have no idea when I woke up. The next thing I remember was probably days later And I was in the actual, like, long-term psych ward for mental patients.
1: Wow. And how did you know that? Did you know that at all?
0: I couldn't really tell you. I had a roommate. So I was in what kind of looked like a dorm room. And he just, like, would not get out of bed. I assume he had major depression. And it was kind of like a really long hallway. And there was just a bunch of people milling around. And everyone seemed quite normal. My memory is so bad but eventually I kind of put it together because there was a strict schedule for what we had Mm. to do every day. So I guess eventually I must have figured it out. Mm -hmm.
2: Okay, so do you have contact with anybody at this point? Nope, just me.
0: Mm. There are visiting hours. I don't remember if it was every day or every other day, but I don't know where I am. I have kind of come to, rationally speaking at this point, relatively, because they're giving me antipsychotic medication which helps a lot, but I'm still, like, out of my mind. I don't know anyone. I'm seeing psychiatrists. I'm seeing social workers. I don't know anything that's happening, and I'm I'm alone. I have no friends, no family.
1: I mean, even that, like, a part of me is, like, any— actual sane person would feel a little crazy in that kind of circumstance because you've been plucked out of your life and Mm. placed into a foreign environment where you don't know anybody and you don't know what's happening and you don't have control over your own life in a really basic way. So that itself is incredibly surreal and and crazy feeling. Mm. So, again, I feel like it's rational to feel a little crazy in that moment. Were you still experiencing the manic symptoms and any of the psychosis?
0: Yeah, kind of. So they had me on a couple different medications, and I think it kind of stopped the racing thoughts, which is the mania part of it, Mm -hmm. and the, the mood. You could do arts and crafts, and I decided to draw... Something before my medication and after my medication as like a comparison. Yeah. I really wish I brought them, but it's like just colors everywhere and like totally amazing. And it looks like a pride flag or something because it's just Hmm. like rainbow colors everywhere before my medication. And then after my medication, it's just a full sheet of me taking graphite and just rubbing it on the paper until it's a full sheet of gray.
1: Wow. Oh, that. Sounds like it was better before the medication. <laughs> <Jeez>.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of what the medication does. It kind of just shuts you down. And so I was still very paranoid. So to illustrate how like one of the psychiatrists, I don't know her name. I wouldn't say it if I did, but something like it had like the word Nazi in it, sort of. It didn't really. But I thought that I was like in a concentration camp or something and like that there were Nazis around me. But my my thoughts weren't racing anymore, and I I wasn't necessarily thinking crazy things. But every so often, these crazy thoughts would come in, and they would seem kind of reasonable. I still wasn't really able to parse reality from fiction. Hmm. How long are you in this space? The mental space or the psych ward? The psych ward. Totally. I was in there for seven days. Okay. So in that seven days, you never had visitors? Oh, no, I did. I don't know if it was once a night or once every few nights, but my parents, just family, would come in. Okay.
2: Okay. And you have various psychiatrists and other figures that you're seeing on a daily basis. Are you in a notably different place by the end of that seven-day period than you are at the beginning of that seven-day period?
0: Yeah, 100%. The medications, the antipsychotics, work miracles. They work pretty much instantly. They took it from 10 out of 10 to like a 2 out of 10. I don't know if I was starting to accept that I actually was crazy, but when I got out of there, I was absolutely way, way better. Hmm. Definitely not fully better, though.
1: Like, Yeah. And how so? Like, can you describe the day that you left? What happened from there?
0: Yeah. I remember going around to everyone because I had kind of made friends at that point. And actually, there was a couple people who were, or I think just one person in this case. That were there for the same reason I was. Hmm. So there was a a young woman, basically my age, we were kind of like a little couple in the psych ward. It was kind of cute. She was a weed smoker. She was from Columbia. She was visiting America. She smoked weed and then she went crazy like I did. So I got her number, her Instagram or something. I I just kind of got everyone's numbers because I wanted to stay in touch with them. And then I remember my mom came in and she was talking with the nurse. And I thought I was, like, fine by this time. I thought I was totally fine. Yeah, something crazy happened, but whatever. And my mom looks at the nurse with tears in her eyes, and she's like, he's not right yet, is he? And the nurse is like, no. Hmm. And I'm, like, kind of hurt by that because I I feel like I'm fine. Like, I feel like I'm right. as cogent as I am now. But they were certainly right.
1: Yeah, and how so? Like, what was lingering
0: it's really hard to explain, and I hate when people say that, but it's just this feeling that you're not really in reality yet. Like you're hmm. you still I'm still clinging on to this idea that there's some kind of grand conspiracy. I don't know. The Christian seems kind of too crazy. Maybe it's between men or something or but I still think there's there's some kind of conspiracy out there. and the interesting thing is it kind of comes in waves. and I hmm. assume that means that the medication was wearing off and I had to take more. But for example, my mom and I went shopping for clothes shortly after, because I left everything in in my new apartment in Philly. And we went to Kohl's and um, I'm part Italian. uh, And so, I don't know, in in Northern Jersey, there's always kind of like, the mob is always on your mind. Not like as a daily thing, but it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, that's where we're from. Mm -hmm. And when we were in Kohl's shopping, I thought that the mob had a hit on me. And so I was Mm -hmm. in the changing room and I saw feet, going by and I'm like I like brought my feet up and I held my breath because I thought someone was going to come in and shoot me
1: oh god
0: and I mean I have no ties to organized crime at all but there were still moments of that it came and went but that lingered for a very long time
1: Can we talk a little bit about the recovery process? Because it's not just seven days in a psych ward. Yeah. It's a long journey.
0: Yeah. Honestly, the recovery is the longest part
1: mm.
3: and
0: the toughest part. Because one of the things that the antipsychotics do is they put you through something called anhedonia, which mm-hmm. I think is Latin for inability to feel pleasure. Yeah. Uh, oh, so I no. was diagnosed with major depression, which I thought I knew what depression was. Man, I did not. I thought it was like oh I feel sad just it was crushing existential dread every day. Oh
3: god. And then I had
0: major anxiety as well where the stupidest little things would just put me into a spiral for hours. I would I would just sob every night over the stupidest things. And then also it 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 turns your brain off is the the worst part. So it's the best part and the worst part because your brain needs to be off. But as a software engineer, you know, every day, all I'm doing is using my brain and I'm trying to solve puzzles, essentially, you know, I'm trying to unwind computer code. And at this point, I'm still a junior developer and I'm trying to learn my craft. And I would just be literally shaking with anxiety at my computer every day because I-, I couldn't code. And wow. um, I would go to the bathroom to dry heave because I I couldn't do my Mm -hmm. job, and I thought I was gonna get fired, and I was so anxious that I was like nauseous. So the depression and anxiety were just wicked through the recovery.
2: How present were Stan and Mike and your boss and your parents during this recovery process?
0: So I was home in Jersey for about a month or more, So I was living with my parents. It wasn't working. I was just going to what's called intensive outpatient, IOP, which, again, totally new world, had no idea what that was. But for three days a week, I would essentially be going to rehab. And the entire time I'm thinking, okay, I had a mental illness, a mental episode, but I'm not a drug addict. Mm. And that's another huge part of my story. But just to keep it short, I was with my parents for a little over a month and then I went back to Philly. And um then I started working right away, which is a terrible idea because uh, I, I couldn't. And so my manager, not the guy I originally who brought me to the hospital, but my manager, I, I level with him and I'm like, dude, I can't do this. Like I seriously. And he's like, oh, you can do it because he had no idea what happened to me. And I'm like, I, I legitimately cannot do my job. And I just started breaking down in front of him.
1: Oh, no. And he
0: was like, OK, then just show up you know, nothing's going to happen. If this gets better in time, then it gets better. If not, then we'll, we'll figure it out, but just show up and just keep healing. Wow. Yeah. Great guy, great company, really amazing. And uh, at this time I'm living with Stan. He was honestly kind of with his girlfriend most nights Mm -hmm. because I had put him through so much. We didn't really cover a, a ton of it, but he just needed some distance. But he was also there for me as well.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I've just been really moved hearing about your friends and your co-workers in this whole saga. Like, those people really cared
0: about you, you know? Yeah. It's really touching. It is very touching. Sometimes it's too much to even think about because I met so many people and I still meet so many people that don't have that. And they went through what I went through. Mm. And they're not doing good, man. Yeah, Mm. They're on the street. They're addicted to worse things now. My parents were so loving, so supportive. My friends are my brothers now. There's no other way of saying it. Mike and Stan showed so much courage and so much fortitude and so much love, never asking for anything in return. And my company, too, you know, no questions asked. My boss, when he brought me to the hospital that second time, paid for it. No questions asked. Stand wow. the first night he paid for the hospital stay, no questions asked. And my manager, again, no questions asked. He's like, okay, are you going to get better eventually? I said, I think so. He said, okay, just keep showing up. And no one needs to know. Wow. And Maybe get better, you get better, man. Wow.
1: That's a lot. It's a lot. So can I like zoom out with you thematically? And, you know, this is a few years ago. How are you doing today? And when you look back on all of this, what does it mean to you?
0: Well, yeah, I guess the first part of that is I'm doing great. I have no trace of the mental illness anymore. Treatment was a complete success. I'm currently engaged to be married with the girl my dreams. Congratulations. Thank you. Life is great. I'm doing what I love. And, uh, I guess what it sort of means to me is like, I, I don't know. I don't know what it means. I, I know I learned from it. I learned that people think things are wrong for a reason, I guess. Because you know, if I asked my parents before, why shouldn't I smoke weed? They'd be like, well, it's bad for you. And it's like, well, it's not. It's medicine. It's good for you. And I don't know. I, I I still think drugs are fine. Like I still have plenty of my friends who take drugs. I can't anymore, uh, obviously. But um, I I've tried to put a bow on it. Like I've I've tried to process it, and at, at this point, I, I don't know what it means.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I honestly just want people to kind of be warned that like cannabis is great. I loved it for many years, but. I never had any signs of mental illness, and I never experienced anything like that. I met so many people in recovery afterwards that went through the same thing, and it seems like no one's talking about it.
2: What is it like for you in your present mind state to try and remember what your mind was like before?
0: It's scary. I didn't know that was possible. I think in like Jungian thought, it's called like the shadow and in the dark side of the moon, that album, like that is the dark side of the moon for me. Mm-hmm. It's the insanity of your mind that's always working behind there, but you have a filter that stops it and you have reason that guides you away from mm-hmm. irrational thoughts. And the fact that I can just go in an instant, man, that is scary. And the doctor said that if I ever, that ever happens again to me, it might not go away. Oh, wow. God. So it's like a do or die. And, you know, I just go through my life sometimes. Life is good. I kind of forget about that. And then I remember that I'm just like, I'm just one step away from total insanity forever. And it's just like, man, shoulda, woulda, coulda. I shouldn't have thought I knew everything. Mm. And it's like at the same time, well, it's not only really my fault. I mean, how was I supposed to know? And you just go back you and forth between those two. You don't know
1: what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Here's one question that I have for you. I want to know if this is true. Because the feeling that you felt when you were manic was exhilarated, is one of the things that you've lost just the pure joy of exhilaration? Like, does any part of you, like mm. when you find yourself exhilarated, worry that you're entering into a manic episode? Yeah. And so, like, mm. all the time, you can't just have pure, unadulterated joy without some part of yourself worrying?
0: yeah and my friends worrying too Hmm. Hmm. i had to get a sleep study done a few months ago and i have a pretty like absurd stupid sense of humor and so i have like all like wired up and um i was in my car and uh i like sent a snapchat to one of my friends so my group of friends saying like oh you can't keep me whatever i'm breaking out and then (laughs) stan called me and it's like dude what is going on and i was like no i'm okay dude i'm sorry and then you just think like, man, I can't make jokes at that anymore. Mm-hmm. Like it's, that was just kind of taken from me. Yeah. And then, yeah, when I, you know, I still enjoy life, everything's still fine. But then there are times when I'm like really motivated to clean the entire apartment. And it's like, is that a manic episode? Hmm. Maybe. And there's also a term that I, I found online called like hypomania, which is like kind of like a baby version of a manic hmm. episode. And I'm like, Well, do I have that? Hmm. I don't know. Like, it's it kind of makes you question like, well, did I have signs of this beforehand? Like, Hmm. sometimes I would be depressed and sometimes I would be really motivated to just, I don't know, work all night. And it's like, is that bipolar? Is that not? I I don't know.
1: (sighs) It's interesting that line like how do you draw the line between this is just a normal th-
2: yeah it's fundamentally it, arbitrary in yeah. some sense the medical yeah. professionals who make the DSM are saying well if you have these five out of ten conditions it's you don't qualify if you have six out of ten you do and everyone is on some spectrum of I mean the hypomania thing I know what that feels like yeah I've been yeah. in places where I want to clean the whole house I think, I and think, it wasn't
1: because yeah. you smoked weed.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <All> right. So,
1: you <laughs> talked about how you have a fiance and you're going to be getting married soon. Does she know about all of this?
0: Yeah, yeah. This was something upfront that I talked about pretty much immediately because. I mean, you know, we went on a couple dates first, but
1: you don't just drop that. So guess, <laughs> I don't know what crazy stories you got, girl, but let me tell you. <laughs>
0: yeah. Hey, by the way, I'm crazy. Might be crazy forever. I'm um, <laughs> crazy, though, so that's fine. I think like our third date or something, I was over her place and we were talking about weed the first date because whatever. And she was like, oh, like I smoke sometimes, whatever. And I was like, oh no, like I can't be around her because Hmm. if I see it, I'm going to want to do it. And if I do it, I'm going to be insane. So when I was over her place, I just was like, look, I have this problem. I didn't really go into too many details, but I was like, I'm addicted to this stuff. I crave it all the time. You can't do it around me. And, you know, we're not strangers, but we're kind of strangers. And she was like, done, no problem. Hmm. And that was the first thing where I was like, okay, that's cool. Like maybe this could be something bigger because I don't like imposing on people and mm-hmm. I don't like saying, oh, you can't do that around me. Mm-hmm. But she was serious enough, even a few dates in where she's like, yeah, done.
1: Yeah. That's really nice. Yeah. Have you talked at length with her about this experience since then?
0: Yeah. So what, once we got kind of more serious, I kind of went into more detail and, and actually I'm trying to Well, I was trying to kind of write all my thoughts down before I forget them all, because I still do have issues with my memory. And so I'm worried I'm going to kind of forget this eventually. So I I was writing a lot of it down and and she read it. And I only really got up into the first couple of days because there's really just there's like so much that happened. Right. And she was like, oh, oh, okay. She's like, I knew you kind of had a problem with drugs, but like, Hmm. I didn't know it was it was this. But by the time we were really in our relationship that long, she knew me and I guess she liked me enough where she was like, you know, this is something that I'm willing to get past and that, you know, it'll always be a, a struggle. I'm in a 12-step program because mm-hmm. I, I can never go back to even alcohol because, you know, I right. if I drink alcohol, I'm going to want to smoke weed. And so I told her about that. I, I told her about all the insanity and she's like,
3: mm.
0: you need to tell people. And I'm like, yeah, but, you know, there's all this idea that like, you know, weed's good for you. And who's going to listen to me? People are going to think that I'm like right wing or something if I say that. And she's like, you don't have to, but she's Mm. like, when she read that she stopped uh, completely because she's also not really had any serious mental illness Mm. like that. But she's like, I don't want that happening to me. Mm. And so she's Mm. like, Christian, you need to tell people.
1: Interesting. So she's been a big supporter of you sharing your experience because it's not talked about.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Right. And I think that's kind of the most, uh, well, definitely not the most, but one of the most upsetting things for me from this whole experience is that I've shared my story kind of, I guess, like anonymously or like my friends have shared uh, their experience of that happening and people just don't believe them. Huh. Hmm. If someone's being obnoxious about weed and like, oh, I smoke so much and whatever, And one of my friends was like, actually, you really shouldn't do that. And they're like, why? It's good for you. It's legal now. And they're like, my friend had a major mental health crisis. And they're like, man, that's just some propaganda. Like, I don't believe you. It didn't happen. It's like, it literally happened. And just no one really believes you. That's that bad. Have you kept in touch with any of the people that you met in the psych ward? Not as much as I would like to. But I actually, I was going through some boxes at my parents' house, and I found that sheet of paper that had all the numbers on it. Hmm. And that Colombian girl, I found her Instagram on there. And so I, I messaged her. I'm like, hey, I'm that crazy guy from the spike <laughs> Remember,
3: like, we oh, were hey. a couple. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, we were in love. And she's like, oh, yeah. And I asked her how she's doing. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just for some context, the definition of type one bipolar, which is like the the big scary one, Mm. is having a manic episode at least once. So we're now diagnosed with that. Mm. It'll never happen again, God willing, if we don't touch drugs and it doesn't affect our daily lives. But we now have that branded on us. And she's like, "Yep, just living with my diagnosis. She's going to a psychiatrist and and we just kind of chatted. But it's like, what do you talk about? You know, are you still crazy? not really, maybe a little bit. haha. And then that was kind of it, but it was just (laughs) kind of like you share a bond with someone when you both have no clue what's going on and you have no idea if it'll ever get better either. You do not know where you are, where it's going. And even in that little microcosm, you can find things to laugh about. Hmm. She was trying to teach me Spanish and I was trying to teach her English Hmm. and, you know, I don't know, trying to teach the word for haircut. It's like, oh, I need a haircut. And then you laugh and I I will never share that bond with anyone else. And Mm. I love my fiancé. It's it's not love. It's more just like a camaraderie Mm. between Mm. two people who are in the throes of chaos.
1: Yeah. Well, it's like that bond between soldiers, right? When they go to war together. I mean, I'm thinking of... We've seen things. The bond between
2: (laughs) you and Raffaele, right? I mean... Mm, Totally. Amanda only knew Raffaele for five days before...
1: We were thrust were into this crazy thing. thrust so into
2: the justice system.
1: Really, our relationship is mostly like, we've been through hell together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. I get that feeling.
2: Well, in terms of what this all means, I think it's okay that you don't have some little ribbon answer mm-hmm. for that, you know? Yeah. You don't need it. And sometimes there isn't one.
1: Yeah. I feel like there is a lot of pressure for people to be like, I'm going to make meaning out of this because I I do feel like that's one of the existential crises that people have is when they feel like they can't make meaning out of something, they experience suffering. But Mm -hmm. like, as long as you're not suffering with the knowledge that like something really big happened to you, it just happened and you know what you need to do in order to to, uh, avoid it happening in the future. It sounds like it can just be.
2: I mean, there's also something you mentioned about you're one moment away from insanity forever. And I know from Amanda's experience, you realize how quickly your life can be snatched away from mm-hmm. you. How
1: everything can and, be taken and away from your,
2: you. it changes your outlook moving forward mm-hmm. because you don't take things for granted in the same way. And it sounds like you are not taking your own sanity for granted
0: which is a thing that i think most people take for granted
2: yeah
1: they do Mm
0: -hmm. i've learned so much even though i don't have a nice little bow to wrap it up in i feel like it made me a stronger person i feel like i appreciate my family more i feel like i appreciate Mm -hmm. my sanity more and like i don't want people to get all paranoid when they're smoking weed but i do want people to think about it this is what happened and draw your own conclusions
2: Talking to Christian was a reminder that our minds are so much more fragile than we think they are. At any moment, we could be inches away from insanity and never realize it.
1: Psychosis is a scary word, but learning about Christian's experience should make us more empathetic towards people who are going through it. No one chooses the mind they have.
2: So we hope you're grateful for your own sanity.
1: In the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox.
2: At Man Under Bridge.
1: And if you're paranoid about the grand conspiracy to keep labyrinths from reaching listeners, please drop us a five-star review and spread the word on social media.
2: This episode was written, edited, and sound designed by us and Sophia Gates, with theme music by Josh Budo Carp.